and welcome to Como Explained. It's a podcast from the KBIA Newsroom. We take the thorny issues and politics that affect our community and we break them down. I'm Scott Pham, the Digital Content Director here at KBIA. Hosting with me, as always, is Ryan Famuliner, Assistant News Director at KBIA. Hello, Ryan. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Good. Um, today's episode is about um, actually a real media, a real issue politics type story, which is something we haven't been doing in a little while. Yeah, and super timely too. But yeah. uh, there's just a lot to talk about. It's something you've probably already been reading about in the last couple of days, and that is the Ryan Ferguson case and the big update that happened that the Western District Appeals Court actually vacated his con- murder conviction. He was convicted of murder in uh, of a 2001 murder of a Columbia Daily Tribune sports editor. So actually, maybe we should break some of that stuff down real yeah. quick. Yeah, so uh, vacated. Why don't you explain yeah, that? Yeah, okay. Vacate is actually, it's, it's a legalese word, right? Uh, it doesn't mean that he is now innocent. It means that his conviction is gone. In fact, now he's back to a pretrial detainee. You know how you, they arrest people and keep them in jail before they take them to trial? That's basically Ryan Ferguson's status right now. Yeah. So his he was found guilty before. They're saying, nah, we're throwing that out, but they're not saying you're innocent, uh, which that's an important distinction. We're going to talk a lot more about what the court actually ruled here later. But first, why don't we take a step back and and explain what happened with this situation. Again, you probably are very familiar with the case uh, if you're listening to the show, but I'm still going to break a few things down. So let's start start at the beginning, okay? Let's get the facts out. You know, it's funny. I feel like if you are a Colombian, if you have any claim to that word— you're going to know everything we're about to say in the next five minutes. Right. And, but, we'll, try to, and we'll try to keep it quick. <laughs> but if you aren't, if you're a student, if you're like like me, someone who has moved here in the recent past, maybe you don't know these things. Right. So, And I'll say, just as a tease, we have a lot of information you're not getting anywhere else later, specifically on what happens going forward. Uh, basically, everybody else is reporting it wrong right now. Uh, so, uh, so we've got information later that, that you want everyone to know. Else. Well, that you want to know. Frankly, I've talked to lawyers and stuff. Most people aren't talking to lawyers. Us journalists, we ain't lawyers, so we don't know what's going on. But okay, so... So let's start at the beginning. November 1st, 2001 um, is a very rough day in Columbia. For the, at the Columbia Daily Tribune, Kent Heitholt um, mm-hmm. is found dead in the parking lot of the Columbia Daily Tribune sports editor there. It's a very brutal murder. He is beaten and he's uh, strangled with his own belt. Right. Um, it's a very brutal murder, and he's found at 2 a.m. in that lot. There are no suspects for years. And it's very strange because when it happens, the police call it a messy murder, right? Mm-hmm. They mean it like... In literal terms, it was, it was kind of a messy scene, but also in that a lot of evidence was left behind, right. there was seemingly. A, there was actually a hair in, in Heitholt's hand that there was were not footprints. his, there bloody was... footprints. There was a lot of uh, – some evidence. I won't say a lot because there's always evidence at murder it scenes. But, like there, but there, was yeah. some, there was some evidence at the murder scene, okay? Yeah. So that's important later too. But really there wasn't much information and no real hot leads on this case uh, for, for years. Two years. Uh, yeah. And so in January 21st, 2004, police get a tip implicating – Charles Erickson, Chuck Erickson, um, who had been starting to talk to his friends about thinking that he may have been involved in this case. And this is where it's very interesting because his testimony is very important in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there's, and there's a lot of reporting on this 48 hours, Dateline, all that stuff. have done big features on this case because it's so bizarre. But basically he, he comes in, uh, he's been talking to friends about this and they call police and say, hey, this guy's acting like he may have been involved. He goes in and police, when they're interrogating him, um, 
are asking him a lot of questions, and he just is, is talking about how he's very clouded. He was said he was blacked out that night and doesn't remember what happened. He was out drinking with Ryan Ferguson, with his friend, that yeah. night, and they thought uh, and they were underage at the time. They were high school students, and he thought that he may have been involved in this case. But he was having trouble recalling details, and police, uh, you know, depending on your reading of the, of the situation, may have been feeding him some information. That's definitely what Ferguson's into- attorneys have said. Um, but regardless, they eventually get Erickson to uh, confess to this crime and implicate his friend Ryan Ferguson. Uh, so in March, on March 11th, 2004, Erickson and Ferguson are both charged and arrested. And later that year in November, Erickson takes a plea bargain, pleads guilty, and takes a 25-year sentence, uh, and he will testify against Ferguson in Ferguson's trial the following year. Mm-hmm. Ferguson, meanwhile, has denied any involvement at all. Denied any involvement. And at this point, there's one... One person testifying against him, and that is Erickson. One thing that's important to note, there is no physical evidence at the, at the murder scene that ties either of them to the scene. Yeah. Uh, there is testimony that has them out that night at a bar nearby, um, but there's no actual evidence that ties them to that scene. And uh, the janitors and that co-worker we mentioned uh, had bo- all said they saw people that night, but uh, all had difficulty identifying the people they saw. One of them did uh, help draw some sketches that we'll talk about later, too, um, but they don't look like... Ferguson or Erickson, those sketches. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, so at this point, uh, Ferguson's going to go to trial, and they think, okay, we just have to get over Erickson's testimony. And with all these videos of this interrogation, uh, the basically the defense for Ferguson is just saying we just need to poke holes in Erickson. Okay, right. At so, this time, Ferguson has a public defender. Right, right. right. And so uh, Ferguson goes to trial, and uh, you know. Basically, he's found guilty. Um, One thing that we'll talk a lot more about later is that it wasn't just Erickson's testimony. There was all of a sudden new testimony uh, from a guy named Jerry Trump. He is one of those janitors that was there that night. And uh, shortly after the murder, that when he was interviewed by police, he said he didn't think he'd be able to identify uh, the people that were at the scene that he saw. He did say he saw two people at the scene. Then at trial, they asked, do you see the people you saw that night in this courtroom? And he points out. Ryan Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that ends up being very key testimony. We're going to talk more about that later on what the court actually did. But so that's really the only thing the state had against Ryan Ferguson are those two pieces of testimony. Because again, there's no physical evidence and no other testimony that really is very incriminating against him. It's really, I think everyone agrees, those were the two testimonies that helped get this conviction. Okay. So Ferguson's sent us to 40 years in jail, in prison. Uh, right. For, and that's for murder. Yeah, he gets a 30 years for second-degree murder and uh, 10 years for first-degree robbery, mm-hmm. which is an odd thing because the victim's wallet was uh, left in his car. The car right. itself seems to have been untouched by by anybody at right. that time. The story the state put together is that Ferguson and Erickson had been out drinking at this bar called By George, and they left the bar because they ran out of money, and they went and— uh, tried to steal money from him, ended up beating Heitholt to death, and then just went back and started drinking again at the bar because they got, but because they realized they actually had money after all. But they, yeah, because they, but they did take uh, whoever murdered Ken Heitholt. They did take uh, something from his person. They took his watch, um, and so uh, so there was something taken from the scene, but it wasn't something that had uh, that, you know that could be turned into drinks later that night, <laughs> no. right? Um, and so uh, and so anyway. Um, so from there, there's a lot of appeals because Ryan Ferguson, again, has contended that he is not guilty, that he had nothing to do with this case. And it's all based on uh, this testimony of these two people and he just thinks it's an unfair trial. And we'll go more into that breakdown of, of why he was not able to get this overturned until now uh, later, too, because there were many, many appeals. But one thing that important thing that happened was in 2008, uh, 48 Hours did a feature on this called Dream Killer. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen much of that, Scott, or see, I heard about these, but they are basically – I hadn't yeah. seen it, actually. Did you watch it? I've watched – maybe not specifically that one, but I've seen other other features like that on this case. And, yeah, they basically are just these very compelling ones telling – you know, you've probably watched these types of things before. Yes. They're very interesting stories with, uh, you know, weird plot twists and interesting details. And, you know, it's always questionable what, what the jury's going to do. It could go either way, right? And this is one of those cases. So it gets a lot of, of attention nationally and internationally. And these cases continue. In fact, 48 Hours is one that ends up taking this on very heavily um, and covering it on a regular basis. Um, but anyway, so over this time, you know, there's all these uh, unsuccessful appeals uh, we'll talk more about later. But then in 2010, something important happens. Uh, Chuck Erickson, the friend that said that he testified Ferguson, against his friend. Yeah, said yeah. Ryan Ferguson helped him do that, recants his testimony. Yeah. He actually says that he acted alone, which is interesting because he's not saying I didn't do it. He's saying Ryan had nothing to do with this. Yeah. Potentially very compelling because he's perjuring himself and he is, you know, admitting to doing this crime is by himself, which is maybe potentially worse. Right. And then uh, but then another interesting thing happens in 2011, and that is that Jerry Trump, the janitor, also recants his testimony. And his rationale is different. Um, his is that he felt pressured into the testimony by prosecutors. And that ends up being very important um, in what happened in this most recent ruling that's possibly going to get Ryan Ferguson out of jail. But it's funny because this actual this habeas corpus petition that just got approved actually had already been taken to a court and been denied. OK, so let's talk about that a little bit. Are we ready to go there? Yeah, let's bring it up to the current okay. time and explain what this ruling is and what exactly it means for Ferguson? So habeas corpus is this legal maneuver that does what we talked about earlier. It it allows a person who's been convicted either to be um, let out of jail because they're innocent, which that really when that happens now is basically largely when there's cases where there's DNA evidence, things like that, that will show that someone else convicted uh, did the crime and you didn't. Mm -hmm. Or or that a ruling can be vacated as this one was and you're able to just be back to being held and possibly being another suspect in a retrial. So there are three possible outcomes of this, right? Your case can be overturned completely. It can be vacated, uh, which is what happened here, or nothing can happen at all. And then you will have to appeal again or, or, or do nothing. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so what, what happened here with this vacation? They found what's called a Brady violation. Okay. It's based on an old court case. Um, and basically what it is, it means that the, the, in a nutshell, it means that the defendant was not given a fair trial. Okay, Uh, And there are many things that that the uh, judges have to prove to say that that there was something that was not done fairly. um, And it basically is the idea is we're getting to the truth of the situation, that if you're withholding information, that's what happened in this case, uh, according to these judges, then you're not having you're not giving uh, justice its fair shake. Right. Right. And then therefore you should be given habeas corpus relief or there should be a retrial or there should be a retrial. Right. Right. Exactly. So here is what took it over the top for these judges. It didn't have to do with the fact that those recantations, that's not actually what they pointed to as the testimony that mattered in this. Okay, what it was was actually testimony from the wife of that janitor, Jerry Trump, named Barbara Trump. Um, It was this testimony from before the trial happened that was never introduced into evidence, never used in any way, in fact. Uh, She said that she didn't provide a newspaper to her husband in the mail. Okay, And that was a key part of Trump's story. Yeah, it seems kind of minor, right? But it's actually a pretty key issue because uh, 
Remember, Trump at first in 2001, after the murder, said he couldn't identify who was there. But his story is that in 2004, when he was in jail for an unrelated thing. for a, a probation violation, uh, he's in jail and he says that his wife sends him a newspaper out of the out of a uh, an envelope, and when he takes it out, it's folded in such a way that he can't see the headline, but he can see the pictures on the paper. And he sees the pictures of Charles Erickson and Ryan Ferguson and says, I know those kids. I've seen them before. And then he folds up the paper and sees the headline and says, oh, gosh, OK, I've got to let someone know about this. Right. So the point of this story is to explain why he came to this realization at a relatively late date. Exactly. Years after the trial. Right, right. That it was some sort of natural recognition. Right. And that's kind of important when you're talking that, that there's no other influence. Right. Uh, in fact, it's kind of a really fantastic story as far as uh, like a, ridic- a kind of crazy situation where he might be able to identify someone without there being some other piece of information that affects what he's thinking. Right. Right. Yeah. If the story was that he read the headline first. It might be a little harder to believe because the headline is going to say the guys in these two pictures killed somebody. Right. And then you'll be influenced. Right. And so his story, again, is that his wife sent him this this newspaper. But his wife says, I never sent him any newspaper. I don't remember ever sending him a newspaper. That testimony was never included in any report, which the investigator who talked to her about that, there was a, this investigator's name is William Hawes. You're going to hear a lot about Kevin Crane, who was the county prosecutor at the time. Um, and a lot of people really don't it felt like he handled the case very poorly. But William Hawes is the guy who's taken the fall for all of this stuff in this court ruling. Literally everything that went wrong, um, he has taken the blame for. Um, and so this, he's the one that took that testimony, and he's supposed to write a report up on that and report it to his prosecutor. And they, in turn, are supposed to provide it to the defense because it's only fair that the defense should know about pertinent information for the case before the trial happens. Because mm-hmm. if they don't, it's not fair. They can't prepare for the case like the, like the state can. That's essentially what Brady says, that, yes. that Supreme Court case. Yes, that they need to have that chance to prepare in a fair way. Okay, And so what that would have done was undermine Trump's testimony, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what they call impeached his testimony because it would have you know, cast doubt on a very key point on how he identified these people. And there's information that should have been included that was not. But the court specifically says this is what was wrong. But they also take great pains in this 54-page thing to say there were lots of other things that were wrong too. And a lot of them involve our boy Hawes here. So the other thing that I think was probably most key, there are other smaller things too, but one of them is that Hawes apparently called Trump while Trump was still in jail. He was supposed to get out of jail in late 2004. And Trump called Hawes while he was in jail. And Hawes says that he told Trump that he and Crane wanted to meet with him once he was out. Again, he's supposed to get out in about a week. Um, Trump says that actually Hawes and Crane were both on that call and that they said, we need to talk to you about identifying these people. In this situation. Now, again, this is after Trump has already recanted his testimony and he's trying to he says he's coming clean about how this all played out. This was never included in the original trial. Okay, Mm. so um, the problem with this is that uh, Trump, the court says, could have reasonably been felt threatened in this situation. He's about a week from getting out of prison. He's been in prison since about a month after the murder happened. So over two years now, he's been in prison. Uh, for this, again, parole violation, okay? And so a week before he's getting out, he's getting this call that, hey, he needs to help with this thing. They're saying he felt that the situation on his release was going to be fragile. He felt that when he was taken back into jail shortly after the Height-Holt murder, that he didn't think that situation was fair. There was something, so he really had, he, he did have a concern there. 
So the story, though, that the prosecutors never include this information in the case in any way that he was contacted while he was in jail. Right. Supposedly because Crane did not know about it. Yes. Because, again, Hawes says Crane was not on that. He says that they just had a meeting once he got out and it was – and that was fine. And they actually – Crane is like the godfather here. He's like, don't tell me about it. Yeah. You just just do what you're doing. Yeah. I'm not going to acknowledge that, but (laughs) many would say that. And it's it's probably a pretty analytical reading of the situation. Uh Um, But all that to say – Hawes is the one saying that, no, I called him and I didn't ever write up this report like I was supposed to and tell people. The other problem with Trump in this whole situation is that he was brought into the case really about three months before the case started, where they knew about this testimony back in December. The case wasn't until October of 2005. Crane and Hawes met with Trump shortly after this, after he got out of prison, and he did tell them that he would be able to identify these guys and he could identify them in prison. And they said that was very surprising. They did not expect that because, again, he had before said he couldn't identify anyone. And all of a sudden, they have a key witness that's not this Erickson guy who's got all this shady stuff. And so the other thing that the court said, even though this wasn't actually a Brady violation, they said they really should have let the defense know about this much earlier so they could prepare for this for this person because they didn't find out until a deposition um, only about four months before the trial that Trump was going to – that he could possibly identify Ryan Ferguson as someone he saw at the scene. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have a chance to prepare for this new this new person and they don't know all this background about how he identified these people, what who he is, all that kind of stuff. They didn't have the time that the court says they probably should have got. There were a few other of these sort of – basically the court called this a trademark practice because there were a couple other situations um, involving other testimony. The owner of By George who was going to testify that they actually closed at one thirty that night, which yeah. would have – Weakened the prosecution's narrative. Yeah, it would have put a hole in it because they said they went back to the by George after the murder happened, which would have been, you know, well past 2.30 uh, in the morning. And then another situation where, where these this information was taken by the prosecution, taken in by the prosecution and not filed in a report or notified to the defense. So the Western District didn't call any of this a Brady violation again, except for the Barbara Trump uh, situation, the wife saying, hey, I never sent him a newspaper. But the thing is, all they have to do is prove one thing was not fair, and it's worth throwing out. Yeah, it's really crazy how that happens. Uh, I think a lot of people have the assumption that it was because of these recantations that the case kind of panned out this way, but it's not really, because what you're trying to say in an appeal situation is the way that we did this trial the first time, that is in 2005, was not done the right way. Uh, So... New, so new evidence, new recantations are not exactly always going to say that, right? It's not going to say it was done wrong. A recantation is usually kind of looked upon with a lot of suspicion because it, uh, there's legally – you still have that old testimony that's still pretty good. and The recantation is, is not necessarily going to change that. But to prove that there was in the past some evidence that wasn't brought out – that has not changed, but just wasn't brought out. That's a lot stronger. Right. And actually, the other interesting thing about this is they don't even have to uh, prove that this would have made the difference in the verdict. They only have to prove that it was pertinent information that was withheld. And there's a few other benchmarks for that, too. But it's, it, they don't have to be able to figure out, because that's a, like proving a negative, proving that they would have, this would have made the difference and jurors would not have been able to convict. Um, but they do have to prove that it was a fair process. And they're saying this was not a fair process because that information was withheld. Uh, there were some other 
other rationalization, the court goes as far as calling absurd uh, when Kevin Crane came back and was talking to them about this habeas corpus writ uh, on why they did not notify uh, people of this new information. So perhaps because it is a little difficult to understand this appeal process and how it works, a lot of people are not very clear the timeline and what happens now, right? And, and you've sussed that out for us. Yeah, I have. And actually, like we were making, we were reporting it wrong, just like everyone else does, right at the beginning. We were just saying, for a minute. Just yeah, a minute. just for a minute. We were saying that it was going to be 15 days and Ferguson could be out. The line right now is that he could be out on for Thanksgiving dinner, right? Uh, that seems very unlikely unless the, there is possible, but it seems unlikely. In fact, the timeline is actually 30 days. Okay, It's really two 15-day waiting periods. That's what's so confusing. Right. It is. And the first 15 days is actually the one that seems more important to me uh, because the first 15 days are when the state could reconsider this decision, could ask someone to reconsider this decision. First, they would have to ask the appellate court to reconsider that decision, which seems very unlikely because they're the same court that just ha- made the decision. So that's right. very un- – usually they'll probably just come back and say no to that. Um, but that is the first step in the process. And actually, I'm told that, that those responses usually don't come back until the end of the month, either the last Tuesday or Thursday of the month. So it's possible that gets delayed uh, even a little further before that response comes back. Huh. But after that happens, if the state does decide to try to uh, pursue this um, – it would actually go to the Supreme Court. They would request the transfer to the Supreme Court that would consider, again, this old case. They're basically considering this 54-page writ of habeas corpus, uh, the, the granting of that. They would be able to consider that and possibly throw it out. But, again, that process actually has no set timeline. The Supreme Court has no deadline on when they would have to get to that. Right. It could so be quick. If- if it does get out of the Western District, that is, if, if they start going to other courts, then that whole 15 to 30 day thing is out of the window. Yeah. If the state decides to pursue this, it's going to be a lot longer than that. Yeah. There's All no they have to do is that. decide. They don't have to potentially do much yet. Right. Well, th- again, this is for the old case. And this is where the confusion comes in. This is for the old case. This is saying we're still going to try to fight for our old case. Mm-hmm. Okay. We think that it's still good. We think we didn't screw up. Um, and okay. so they, and the only place, other place they can take it is the Supreme Court. That would be the one that would have to decide on whether or not there was an issue. The here. state Supreme Court. Right, the state yeah. Supreme Court. And this, this case has almost gotten to the state Supreme Court, I think twice now, through the appeal process from the defense. So that's not a crazy thing to happen. It's, right. It's and very that, plausible. And yeah, that was in the, when they were going for an appeal. But now this is a different situation, right? Because yeah. this is talking about letting someone who was convicted of murder originally out of jail. Okay. Um, so what? So the other situation is? Yeah. The other situation that everybody's been talking about is that they would have to retry uh, Ryan Ferguson. And to me, that seems very far-fetched that that would actually happen because, uh, well, basically, again, to get back to the timeline. So let's say that the state doesn't decide to worry about its old case and say we want to we we'll hold on to it. There's still a 15-day period until that time runs out. And the 15-day 15 15 clock actually starts that this court put out in this recent, uh, in this ruling this week. And so- then that 15 days is when the state has to just just express in written form that they plan to open this case back up and retry it. But again, that seems, I think, almost everyone would agree that seems pretty unlikely because at this point, what do they have? They have no physical evidence and they have uh, the two key testimony that went in the original case anyway, unless they have new evidence, which is possible. But the only evidence they have at the moment uh, from the first case uh, is completely, basically null and void at this they're point. They're all recanted. Because they've been recanted. They're not credible witnesses at this point. No. They, um, yeah. And they, the, the physical evidence part has always been the weakest part of the case. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Basically, there's none. Yeah. Um, so you've got uh, – so basically, that's a 30-day period. So if the state does absolutely nothing, it's actually going to be 30 days until Ryan Ferguson gets out of jail mm-hmm. uh, from when this was issued on Tuesday. Um, the state could make this quicker. They could say, you know what? 
we're going to waive these these options and let you out. They could go let him out right now if they wanted to. And that's the truth. They could let him out if they wanted to. But doing that is basically a big my bad, right? It's like yeah. basically admitting like, yeah, we screwed up. No, it, yeah, it's, it, you're right. It is just kind of let – it's either t- taking ownership and saying, you know what? We're going to stop in this nightmare for you and let you out. Or they're going to say, you know what? We're going to try to the, – the last option seems less likely. To me, the thing that seems possible is that they may try to hold their old case intact and say, no, this uh, habeas corpus decision – uh, shouldn't be held. It seems like the the case. It, it seems like the option with the strongest chance of succeeding. Because if they try to appeal their old case, basically they still have all that old testimony intact, mm-hmm. right? Even though there are recantations, that hasn't done much so far, and it hasn't done anything yet in this situation. So they get to still basically, you know, hold onto that case based on the strength of those testimonies, those Mm -hmm. original, now recanted testimonies. Right. The other important thing, though, is that this court actually took a step, an interesting step. Again, they said they only had to prove that one thing. So they proved that one thing, the janitor's wife testimony. But they also left the other three decisions alone. They didn't say yes or no to them. They said, we're going to dismiss them without prejudice. And so that means that they actually could take that back up if they needed to. So if a court came back and said that they didn't, uh, they disagreed with the ruling, they actually could bring that back up. So they kind of left some extra aces in the hole if they need them kind of thing. Now, those would be probably more complex issues to try to write. This was 54 pages on a pretty basic issue. Yeah, but take um, it up your whole afternoon. It, it did. It really did. <laughs> and so um, – but that to say, uh, you know, if, if this court really wants this to happen, uh, they can, you know, still come back. If these judges want this, this the three-judge panel wants this to happen, it can happen. I've talked to some lawyers about this, and that was their reading of this situation was that, again, they mentioned all, all this. Uh, they mentioned it but said – kind of said we're looking at it, but we're not looking at it. They said we see all this other stuff. We can't say that it was an actual Brady violation. Um, but we see all these recanted testimonies. We see all this other stuff, this trademark stuff that we weren't happy about. And so we see this, and it, it helps enhance is the word they use. It enhances our confidence, or actually their lack of confidence in the original ruling, which that's really what was important here. So really, you know, the lawyers I talked to, I'll leave them off the record as they asked to be, but they were saying, you know, it does seem that these, these uh, judges just said, I have a problem with a lot here, and I'm going to take the thing that I can prove the thing that I can throw out and, and use it, that there was, there was more to it. And that's kind of the question is what, hap- you know, what changed between all these other appeals in the past and, and now? And it really is a, a lot of this new information. Even though right. they, they expressly said this isn't what we're making our decision on, they did say we see this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So in a roundabout way, you're saying these recanted testimonies did make a difference. 48 hours did make a difference. But in a legal way, explicitly not. Yes, that's how the that's how the uh, ju- three judge panel has held it for now. Um, I mean, and if you think about it, that's all that's changed, right? Again, they actually had taken it to this same Western Court of Western District Court of Appeals. In fact, one of the three judges you looked this up was yeah. was actually one of the same judges that rejected a four a, appeal in the past before the recantations happened. Yeah, th- this panel changes every year, um, but one of these judges, Victor Howard had ruled on this case before, had actually concurred with his peers to uh, reject the appeal. Right. And now he's on board with uh, with granting habeas corpus. So, um, we so, so, so. Yeah, so something clearly changed, right? And, and you know, it's basically some of that information. So 
Okay, well, that's going to do it for Como Explained. I hope we got the information out there that needed to get out there. Obviously, there's a lot more Absolutely a lot than more. this. The Missourian put together a nice little timeline that we made good use of today. I'm going to put that up on the site. Uh, my name is Scott Pham. My co-host, as always, is Ryan from Mueliner. Give us a listen each and every week. Find us on kbia.org or even better, the iTunes Store. Just search for Como Explained, then hit the subscribe button and get a shiny new podcast automatically each week. If you've got a comment or a show idea, we love both. Email us at news at kbia.org. Tweet us at kbia. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys. <laughs>